You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Now, what we do at our church is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. So if you got a, a Bible with you or an app on your phone, you can go to the book of Hebrews. Uh, I'll be in chapter 2 today. If you don't have anything, uh, those verses should mostly be on the screen for you. And, um, and, and I want to preach this sermon, just these four verses, and show you this salvation, uh, this gospel salvation that we hold to as Christians. It's, um, it's deeply important. Um, and it is uh, the center of all that we do. The book of Hebrews teaches us to be Christocentric. It's a word that I'm uh, focusing our church on as we go through this series, um, meaning Christ and his message is at the, the very core of all that we are and all that we do. Um, not just our church, but our lives as the church, as the people of God. And as we look at this, um, I, I want you to, to do your best to stick with me, but, but I want to open with this, tell you statistically uh, none of y'all are going to listen to this whole sermon. Um, and, and, and let me just, some of it is because some of you m- might not like me that much, or maybe you just don't think I'm very interesting. Um, my wife says I'm not as funny as I like to think that I am. Um, but uh, the average adult attention span maxes out around 21 minutes. And, and some of you are like, yeah, amen, why do you preach longer than 21 minutes? Like, I got it. I got more to say than 21 minutes worth, Okay. But, but what Jeremy preaches for 42, he exactly doubles that. So you can just like, you know, kind of check out mentally and then, you know, log back in. Um, but, but even if you remain committed uh, longer than that 21-minute average, think of like watching a movie. I, I know some of it are like, well, I can pay attention to something longer than 21 minutes. I watch, you know, we watched Pearl Harbor recently, and it was like six hours long or something. And um, and. and but even in that, like think of watching a movie or something like that, your mind will, will have these moments of kind of running somewhere else. Um, actually, the scientists actually uh, estimate that, that most of us can only pay attention to something for about eight seconds before our mind uh, brings some kind of intrusive thought in from somewhere else. Um, and actually, goldfish uh, can hold their attention for about nine seconds. So goldfish do a little bit better than human beings. And, and so as you think about that, um, look at Hebrews chapter 2, and, and I want you to, to understand this is why the author of Hebrews uses the phrase, pay attention. Because God knows our limitations, God created us, and he knows how difficult it is for us to stay focused on one thing for a long time, specifically in, in terms of what this passage is going to call us to, the gospel. To, to spend your whole lives paying attention to, uh, focused in on the gospel of Jesus, the good message that the Bible brings to us. Hebrews shares this good news uh, with the, the Jews, a people at that time in the first century who might not have heard this good message yet. And so I have two points I want you to see. Uh, number one, salvation through the gospel, what, what this salvation is and how God actually saves his people through this message. And secondly, assurance in the gospel, how we can have assurance that, that we've been redeemed and saved and that the Lord will take care of us all of our days, even into eternity. So first, let's look at salvation through the gospel. Uh, let me just define salvation for you briefly. Salvation, biblically, means deliverance from destruction, uh, to be spared from destruction that we rightly deserve. Um, Because we are sinners, we have offended a perfect and a holy God. Our sin deserves a punishment. And and, and not just any punishment, but eternal punishment. Because God is infinitely uh, perfect and holy, we are, uh, even the smallest sin, 
uh, separates us eternally from him. And so we are deserving of God's eternal wrath. And so we find ourselves in a position of needing saved, needing salvation. And, and you've probably heard this uh, phrase used a lot, especially if you grew up around uh, in the church or around church people. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, got saved, a lot. I got saved. Uh, the, the tradition I grew up in, in a free will Baptist church, there were people that got saved every time we had a revival. We'd have a revival every year or t- twice a year, and there were people that got saved every time. It's like, well, listen, I don't know what you were doing for Jesus to kick you out, but they had to go and get saved all over again. They'd walk, you know, we'd sing Just As I Am, all 45 verses of it, and they'd walk up in the, in the altar, you know, and cry and hoot and holler, and, and they'd get saved. And, and a bunch of people would be standing in the back like, Really uncomfortable with this. I don't know what's going on. And a lot of people ask us sometimes, why don't we have an altar call? Well, because it's not really that explicit in the Bible. Actually, we do communion every Sunday. We call it the biblical altar call because um, rather than the people who uh, need to be called out in their sin, rather those who are in a relationship with Christ, we come forward to receive uh, a new week after week uh, understanding that we need forgiveness and need to stay in salvation with the Lord. Um, but the good news is, that, that we don't hold ourselves saved. We don't hold ourselves in the kingdom of God. God holds us. Amen? And, and, and once, you, once you grasp that, it will completely change the way that you live your life. You'll, you'll start to realize that you don't have to have it all together, that you don't have to be holier than thou, that you don't have to be Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. You begin to understand that Jesus died because you're a jacked up sinner, to save you because he loves you, and he is making you into what he wants you to be. Now, this, uh, this all comes through the message of the gospel. There's a word uh, that, that I heard used a lot in, in my kind of country Baptist background, uh, backslide. Y'all heard that word used by church people before? Well, he had backslidden, so I had to thump him with a Bible and get him to the altar, right? And, and backsliding's not really in Scripture that much. Uh, the closest thing you're going to see to it is Hebrews 2.1. Uh, where, where it talks about drifting. Um, but, but I need you to understand, uh, before I jump into this passage, that, that when the Bible talks about drifting, um, there's, what, what's not at play here is losing our salvation. Um, if you want to grab coffee and talk about this, I'd love to talk to you more about this. But John chapter 10, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, we just sang some verses of. Um, all of those passages make it very clear that once uh, Jesus saves you, once you repent of sin and you're in his church, you're in his kingdom, that he holds on to you. That, so like, even if you, if you mess up tomorrow, you don't have to come and get saved all over again. Jesus holds you in his kingdom. But, but we are given this warning in Hebrews 2, 1. So look at that verse with me. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We don't want to drift away from the message of the gospel. Now, this drift isn't talking about us losing our salvation. This drift is talking about us losing our focus. I need you to understand that difference, okay? When we drift, we don't lose our salvation. God doesn't boot us out of his kingdom. But when we drift, we lose our focus on what we should be focused on as sons and daughters of the king. It's kind of like, you ever, you ever been driving and then all of a sudden realize you're driving? Anybody else do that? It's like, I, like and, and I'm like, I'm, I'm 20 miles down the road. I don't even know what happened. There might be like fireballs of destruction the 20 miles behind me. I don't even know how I got here. I just like spawned and I'm driving. 
Okay, and, and this, that's why it's probably safer for me to be on a Harley Davidson because I'm using all four limbs instead of like when I'm in the truck, like my knees are just holding the wheel steady. I don't even know where I am. And, and, and this is kind of what the author has in mind when he says, lest you drift. You just kind of put it on cruise control, right? And, and yeah, 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 I've heard the gospel. I know Jesus died for my sins. I know he rose from the dead. I understand all that. And, and you just shift it into cruise control and you stop paying attention to that gospel message. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that we are depraved. The doctrine of depravity means that not, doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be, but it means before Christ we're as bad off as we could possibly be. That from, from the, the, the worst of us in this room to, to those of us who have, who have maybe stayed pretty squeaky clean most of our years, that, that no matter where you are on that spectrum, you find yourself a sinner separated from a holy God. And because we are depraved, even after Jesus saves us, our natural proclivity is to drift away. Now we have this myth in our mind that we can kind of stand still, that we can kind of maintain our proximity and our relationship to Jesus on our own. But the reality is, is we're either putting an effort to draw closer to Christ in sanctification, and if we're not, guess what? We're drifting away from him. I went fishing with Chris Sowards one time. We went on our kayaks up to Ripley. And he had, he had this fancy thing on his kayak called a trolling motor. And I didn't have one of those, okay? And I had to paddle across my lap. And I struggle, you know, because I'm trying to cast. And, you know, I struggle just to fish in general, you know. And, um, but then also, it was a windy day on the lake. And so um, while I was fishing, I wasn't paddling. And so the wind would take me every which way. I, you know, I would just kind of float wherever nature took me. I'd look over at Chris, and he'd just stay in that same spot, catching all the fish, you know, doing exactly what, what he wanted to do. And, and, and the reality is, is that, that God has equipped us to be able to uh, not just maintain, but even draw closer to him, kind of giving us that spiritual trolling motor, that, that it's not that hard to continually walk in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, the, the grace of God is that he makes it easy for us. He doesn't set the bar very high. But if we stop paying attention, like verse 1 says, if we stop paying attention to the gospel message and we get distracted and begin to focus on the wrong things, guess what? We're going to drift away. We'll lose our focus. The winds of the world will blow us every which way. And if you want your life to stay centered on Jesus' gospel, you must be intentional. So you've got to pay attention. But the same is true biblically as is in reality with your attention span. In the same way that you have a limited attention span, and even if you come in with the best, yeah, I'm going to listen to every word the preacher says in church today, at some point in the sermon, your mind will drift. The same with your Christian walk. At some point, you will lose your focus a little bit. You'll get distracted, and you'll begin to pay attention to the wrong things. They're not, they might not even be bad things. Your kid might need you. They might not even be unimportant things. They're just not the main thing. Kind of like when you're driving and you're paying attention to the radio instead of the road. In our lives, especially in Christian walks, this could look like, especially as a church, this could look like issues apart from the gospel. Jeremy's teaching a class on eschatology. 
um, which is the study of end times. I went to it Wednesday, and I learned so much that I, I'd like forgotten so much about that topic. And it was great to sit in that Bible study and learn. But Jeremy was great about bringing it into its perspective. We can debate on the timing of when Jesus is going to come back and how those things are going to work and what the symbolism of prophecy and Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel might look like. But the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know he's coming back to save us. Whether it's eschatology or critical race theory or fighting about gender, those things are important issues, but they become distractions if we overfocus on them and forget about the gospel. The church needs answers to real issues like these, but they cannot overshadow the gospel message that we have as Christians. The gospel has to be centered. Y'all remember it's an election year, in case you've been living under a rock? Let me just tell you, as a guy who's pastored long enough to see several election years go through, Christians lose their minds every four years. And we forget what God has called us to, and our political agendas become more important than the gospel agenda that Jesus has given us. We need to pay attention to the gospel first and foremost, and our attention to the details beyond the gospel need to be shaped by the message of Jesus himself. The fact that he has died on a cross and risen from the dead shapes everything in my life. The most mundane acts of my life are shaped by this gospel. The word gospel just means good news or good message. It's a message of hope that we have been given by Jesus himself. And this message is what the author of Hebrews is proclaiming to his audience and thereby us, that we pay attention to it over and over and over again. And when it feels like, okay, I'm tired of hearing it. I've heard it before. That's exactly when you need to hear it. I've had a couple of kids in our church ask me one time, when are you going to stop? Like every sermon is about Jesus dying on the cross. Amen. Exactly. And if, and if I stop preaching that, find a different church, please. That is the central message and the only message of the church and his word. Look at verse 2. It says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, I know this might seem a little bit weird, especially if you weren't here uh, last week to hear about angels and talk about angels. You might be like, well, what the heck does uh, angels have to do with it? Uh, remember, the, the theme of Hebrews is greater. And in chapter 1, and you can go back and read it uh, this week if you missed it, but in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews makes a case that Jesus is superior or greater than all of God's created angels. And, and so he's building on that theme, the author is, and he's making a case that even though the angels revealed the Old Testament law to God's people, that the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is greater. That this gospel is greater than the Old Testament law. Not that we don't pay attention to the Old Testament law, but it has its place in revealing to us the fullness of God's revelation so that we could know the Son. The message declared by angels is most likely a reference to specifically Moses' law, uh, that we find in the first five books of Scripture. Stephen mentioned it in Acts chapter 7. One of the first deacons um, in the church in Acts 7, he has some harsh words for the Hebrew people. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you, you who received the law as delivered by angels 
did not keep it. And so Stephen is referencing the Old Testament, speaking of Jesus Christ. He calls him, in, in Acts 7, he calls him the righteous one, that, that he's making the case that now that Jesus has come and lived a perfect life and died for our sins and risen from the dead, he, he now can see that all of the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. And he says that, that these people betrayed and murdered him, and he said, you didn't receive the law from angels, and you rejected the Son as well. And what he's referencing is um, one example of many in the beginnings of the, of the Bible, Deuteronomy 30, 19, where God speaks to his people, and he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. In the Old Testament law, God revealed what was right and what was wrong. And he told his people, you need to abide in this covenant, in this law, in this relationship, that you follow my orders, my decrees of what is right and what is wrong. And he tells them very clearly that if you follow in righteousness, you'll live, but if you follow in sin, then you'll die. And the law proved that God actually did punish sin. The law also proves your guilt, by the way. That's not null and void. The law shows you that you need a Savior. You need the law of God, His morality, so you know what's right and wrong. Think Ten Commandments. So that you can be without excuse, and that when you stand before God one day, you won't be able to be like, well, I didn't know what was, what was right or what was wrong. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to lie. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to steal. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to murder or, or have hatred in my heart toward my brother. You see, God has showed us that so that we have no excuse, but then not only has he shown us our guilt, but he's shown us our rescue in the Son, Jesus. You see, the gospel delivers this rescue, salvation, remember, deliverance from destruction. And the reality is your sin before Christ dug a hole so deep that you couldn't climb out of it. But God made a way of escape for you, unless you haven't taken it yet. And if you're if you haven't received Christ today, then you're standing at this crossroads. There is no non-decision in this, by the way. Some people want to put this off. Be like, well, you know, I, I'm young. You know, I got my whole life ahead of me, whatever it may be. But, but I, I'm just not ready to be a church-going Christian yet. Well, that's rejection, biblically. You're rejecting the God who has given you salvation but he's given us a way of escape to escape his wrath. Al Mohler puts it this way. He says, The seriousness of the gospel cannot be overstated. The gospel is good news for those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ. It is terrible news for those who do not. And the author of Hebrews is pointing out the very real wrath of God for those who refuse to bow their knee and repent before a holy God. If you're lost, if you've not genuinely stepped into a relationship with God, maybe you've been coming to church for a while and you're just on cruise control, just kind of playing the part, but you've never really committed your life to Jesus, grab the gospel rope. So let the Lord pull you out of sin and into his grace. And Christians, let me tell you this, those of you that have been walking with Christ for a long time, salvation, when it's mentioned in the Bible, is always in the present tense. We tend to think of it as past tense, don't we? Well, I got saved one time. No, the Bible says we are being saved. Anytime the, the Bible talks about salvation, it is this ongoing thing. 
We are being saved. Now, there's a moment of conversion where we repent of sin, we trust in Jesus, we enter his church, we become part of his kingdom, but then we are being saved, sanctified, as we get closer and closer to eternity with him. Now, the admonition to pay attention to the gospel is continual. Because we are being saved and being sanctified, it is all the more imperative that we pay attention to this message that we first received when we were baby Christians. You see, don't drift away. We don't lose our salvation, but our drifting away may, may prove that we really never made it to the shore in the first place. You see, drifting is kind of a nautical term. And he says, if you're drifting, it might be cause for you to examine your life and say, did I ever really rest in Christ in the first place? But you can have assurance that you're saved. You can know that you're saved. And, and the author of Hebrews continues in this, in this idea. He says that... Um, that that the angels delivered this, uh, this message. But then he says, furthermore, in the gospel, how shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? So the admonition thereby is implied, do not neglect this great salvation. And by continually paying attention to it, you can have assurance in the gospel, which is point two. Assurance in the gospel. First of all, now remember back to the beginning of this letter. In chapter one, how the letter started out. The author of Hebrews is making a case that all revelation, how God has revealed himself, culminated in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He begins the letter, let me jump back to chapter 1, the very beginning of the book, by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world." So this full revelation from the Son is the message that he brought and the work that he accomplished, namely his death, burial, and resurrection. And Hebrews is going to demonstrate that it's verifiable, that the, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead is verifiable. And so let me just, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of non-Christians in my life. And I, I had one in particular conversation I go back to a lot was a, a young man that was just having trouble believing the Bible. And he was like, you mean to tell me that this guy got swallowed by a fish and survived for three days and then spit back out? You mean to tell me there was a global flood? There's a story about a donkey talking in the Old Testament. That sounds like Shrek. You know? And so he's going on all these things that he just, he just has trouble believing. And I said, well, what do you think about somebody raising from the dead? And he's like, yeah, I don't know about that. And I'm like, like you've heard about Jesus raising from the dead. Like, what? And he's like, uh, maybe. And I'm like, maybe? Like, you're, you're mad about a donkey talking, but you maybe someone rose from the dead? And so I said, listen, forget all the other stuff for just a second. If a man rose from the dead, is anything else in the Bible unbelievable? Of course not. So the central question that we have to answer is, did Jesus raise from the dead? And if he did, it changes everything, not just in how we view the Bible, but in how we live, amen? If Jesus is alive, then we must worship him. We must live our whole lives in allegiance to him, if he's alive. And Hebrews, as well as other parts of the Bible, makes the case that Jesus raising from the dead is verifiable. He, he says in verse 3, the second half of verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus himself, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And so he's saying this gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus proclaimed that even before he died on the cross and rose from the dead. 
Furthermore, the apostles, the 12 disciples that were around him, uh, 11 once Judas was out of the group, but they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, and they told people about it. And, and Paul also saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. He was going around arresting Christians, persecuting the church, and Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? Multiple times in the New Testament, the claim is made of the verifiability of the resurrection. Paul makes a similar argument to this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes his letter to Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what, see that gospel priority there? As of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just give us the gospel. He verifies the gospel, and he keeps writing. The next verse says, He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so at the time that Paul writes this letter, the resurrection had many witnesses, and you could fact-check Paul, that, that as he published this, and it was copied down by scribes multiple times, people could read this open letter, and they, if, if someone was like, you know, I don't believe a man rose from the dead, there were hundreds of people that they could go talk to about seeing Jesus, about touching Jesus after he had died. Jesus has mentioned himself, Peter and all the disciples, also the female followers of Jesus that saw him after his resurrection. What's mind-blowing is there's a crowd of over 500 people that Jesus appears to. Look around the room. This, This room has 300 chairs in it. So like, imagine Jesus speaking to a crowd, like two of these rooms, and Jesus is talking to them after he died and was buried for three days. Like, that's a bold claim. And Paul's like, if you don't believe that happened, go find the people that were in that room and talk to Jesus. He mentions James and the other apostles. What's amazing is how, how willing they were to, 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 to tempt people to go test their theory. This isn't some made-up lie. No, if you don't believe the resurrection, go talk to them. You guys, I know everyone's got like an aunt or an uncle or a cousin that always shares weird stuff on Facebook, right? You Again, if, it, if you don't, it's you, okay? And, and you click, you know, that you see the news link they share, and you're like, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that that happened. And you click on it, and there's like weird ads for like, it's always like toe fungus, I feel like, or something. And you can't even read the article because there's so many ads. It's just like a real sketchy website, you know? And so like, um, you know, we, we see that, and, and, and we got to fact check it, right? Is this legitimate or not. So we'll go over to snopes.com. Like, is this real or not? What we're reading in 1 Corinthians 15 is like the New Testament version of Snopes. Paul's like, call my bluff if you want. Paul's saying, I'm willing to die for this. This isn't some crazy Facebook link that I'm sharing. This is something I'm basing my entire life on, and I'm willing to die for it. Matter of fact, history tells us that those hundreds of people, the majority of them were killed for saying that Jesus was alive. Now, if it was just some story that, like, they got together and, like, let's make up this lie so we can make money or so we can have a new cult or whatever it may be, most people are going to give up on that when a sword is to their throat, 
Like, okay, we made it up. Let me live. But, okay, maybe there's a couple of psychos that would die for it, but hundreds of people willing to go to their grave and say, no, that man is alive. Jesus is my Lord because he rose from the dead. That's what I'm talking about when Hebrews says this is verifiable, that it was attested by the Son and then the apostles. Verse 4 of Hebrews continues with how this gospel message was verified. It says, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, if you don't like our eyewitness accounts, our hundreds of eyewitness accounts, God himself has borne witness that this gospel message is true. Signs and wonders. The book of Acts is filled with supernatural happenings. The purpose of of the miracles that you see in the book of Acts in particular wasn't just so there could be like a big crowd and there could be a lot of hype. The the purpose of the supernatural miracles that happened right after Jesus rose from the dead was to authenticate the message of the gospel. If there was no message, there would have been no miracles. God sent the miracles to be a testifier or a witness to the fact that Jesus really was alive. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews says not only were there signs and wonders and various miracles, but even continuing on into the church, continuing on, there is this uh, gifting of the Holy Spirit that, that God gifts his people so that we can collectively testify to the world that Jesus is alive. Now, there's some mystery in what the spiritual gifts are. It's a hotly debated issue in the church. There's kind of a a spectrum, if you think of it, on one end of the spectrum are cessationists who say that all of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit ended um, at the the end of the book of Acts, at the end of the writing of Scripture, because it was just to verify the gospel. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have charismatics, which which comes from the Greek word uh, for gift or spirit, spiritual gift. And the charismatics say, no, we got to have those spiritual gifts. And they're the ones that, you know, they're kind of like flopping around on church church floors all the time, you know, like, you know, if the church ain't, ain't hopping, then the church is flopping, that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? And, um, and, and they're the ones that are just kind of kooky if you've been to those churches. I kind of like to hang out in the middle, um, and, and I'm what I call a continuationist. I believe that God can do supernatural things, and he does, uh, but we don't have to be weird about it. Amen? And, um, and, and so what, wherever you fall on that spectrum, listen, the Bible does make it clear that, that God is sovereign over all supernatural things, over all spiritual gifts. God is sovereign over it. Even though there's some mystery in what God's doing through the Holy Spirit, what I do know is that God reserves the right of sovereignty. Hebrews 2.4 says that he gifts, those gifts are distributed according to his will, not according to our will. And so those guys that think they can just heal anyone, they just, you see those guys that take their jackets off and like hit people? Like, I wouldn't want to stand in judgment, you know, I've been hitting people at church. And but, but those guys are, are misunderstanding what, what Scripture says about spiritual gifts. They don't possess, some, they're not like X-Men. They're not some, they don't have superpowers. That's not what spiritual gifts are. The spiritual gifts are at God's will, at his discretion, at his direction. So I know that to be true. The second thing I know to be true is that the Spirit's work will always promote the Son's message. Now, don't mishear that. The Spirit's work will always promote the Son's message. And so our ministries don't exist to promote 
to, to promote the outworking of the Holy Spirit. The, the ministry of the Spirit is to promote Jesus Christ the Son and his gospel, that he lived, died, was buried, and rose from the dead. The third thing I know to be true is that the Spirit is continuing to work, that the Spirit is at work in us. And the reason I know this is because Jesus told me so. In John chapter 15, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in this passage he calls, he nicknames the Holy Spirit the Helper. And he says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You notice it's, he, he'll, he'll lead you to the coolest church. It doesn't say that. He will bear witness about the Son. The next verse says, and you also will bear witness. Isn't that wild? We get, to, we get to do the same job that the Holy Spirit does. Not because we're awesome or perfect or holier than thou, but because of God's grace. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so let me, let me tell you this. As I come to a close, you are here at church. We're <clears throat> watching online. You're participating in church today because at least two people have borne witness to you. The first is the Holy Spirit. Through promptings, through spiritual conviction, through circumstances, God's Spirit has gripped you at some point in your life. Even if you haven't surrendered your life to Him, even if you're not a Christian, that all of us are, are participating in church today because the Spirit has testified of Jesus to us. Even if we're not sure if we believe it yet, the Spirit has testified of that to us. And the second person who has witnessed to us is a Christian. I, I would venture to say that probably everyone in the room has had multiple Christians tell them of this, but I know at least one person has shared this hope with you. And what's amazing is we all come the same way. That God, God, could have, God could have sent angels from heaven to tell us this good news, just like he announced his son's birth. Lots of miraculous things could have happened, but God chose very simple means, very messed up people, to take his message to a world that needs to hear it. Through his spirit and through believers who are willing to devote their lives to it. For 2,000 years, up until 2024 in Milton, West Virginia, we are here because we have been witnessed to by the Spirit and at least one Christian. And if all that's happened, and you have still neglected this great salvation, look again at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You are a colossal fool to neglect it, respectfully. My son's been teaching me to say that he can say like really offensive things and then just go respectfully. But if you've rejected all of this, this verifiable gospel, people working in your life, people showing you love and grace and affection, and you're just like white knuckle, like holding on, like resisting it, what are you waiting for? Jesus is, is moving everything to get to you because he loves you. And those of you who have walked with Christ for a lot of years, this is what we stay focused on. Amen? That, that that happened for us and is happening for us. That, that Jesus isn't bored with us. 
You ever think about that? Like, Jesus has to be sick of me by now. Anyone else ever think that? It's like, it's me again, Lord. Sorry to bother you. Need you again. He doesn't ever get tired of you. He doesn't ever get tired of hearing from you. He never for a millisecond regrets dying to pay for your sins. You see why this is something that you have to pay attention to for the rest of your life? There's not a day that I would want to pass where I don't pay attention to the beautiful fact that Jesus died for me. And that's exactly what we reflect on week after week as we gather here. And the reason we don't ever get tired of it, and the reason we preach the same message all the time, and the reason that church kind of feels like the same thing over and over again is because it is that hope that will carry on into eternity, and we won't get sick of it because Jesus is a good Savior. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.